And shame on me for allowing it to happen, but it just happened, and things that we were doing uh, allowed it to take place that we let the day go by without celebrating her birthday. We did some tapes and some singing and some stuff like that with Brother Hamblin and things like that. And we, it's, it's not gone. It's not forgotten. It will, we've already discussed it. We will be de, uh, dealing with her birthday at the end of the week. But I need to say that God has given me a wife that when things like that come, uh, I didn't have one argument. I didn't have one eyebrow raised while the other one was still lowered. She just rolled with it and, and basically said, listen, don't worry about that. And, and I thank God for that. I mean, my goodness, there's enough to overcome when a Tennessee, girl, a Tennessee boy and a New Jersey girl came together as husband and wife without having the Tennessee guy do things like that. And there's so many, so many times throughout our lives, our marriage, that things like that have happened. She loves her house. She loves being at home. And then all of a sudden, God puts a calling on our family to, uh, to hit the road. And that, that's, a, that's a difficulty. There's not a doubt about it. That's a difficulty. But God never called me to be in one place and my family to be somewhere else. I can't be the head of a family like that. I mean, a call from, from Nadine, I've tried to imagine saying one of the children's out of, out of hand or, uh, or I'm having this problem, the plumbing's not right or something like that. All I can do is sympathize with her and maybe sound stern on the phone somewhat, but it can't really accomplish it. And so when God called me into working with church planters all over North America, He called the whole family. And so when we get in the van, what do I hear from my wife? I hear her say, you know, it sure feels good to get back in the van again, something along this line. She said, I enjoy this. And so God's done a work on her heart, and I'm grateful to the Lord for it. Now I'll change topics, and I'll state to the choir, choir, you sounded wonderful this evening. Let me state to this point, tonight to this point is the best meeting we've had bar none this week. And as I sat there listening to the choir sing, I thought to myself, Part of, the, of the, the atmosphere of the evening with the Holy Spirit's movement amongst us is that choir setting that tone in music. And I thought, what a wonderful thing that singing is. And let me just state it, while all, Lord willing, as many choir members as we got together is, choir, it sure would benefit the rest of the meeting if you'd be here on Thursday and Friday night as well. I'm telling you, God used you tonight. My favorite song when I think about coming to Tabernacle is that holy, 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 the way you sing it, and then the choir interludes and the organ and the piano are, are pumping it out, and then you change keys and rise. Man, I feel like the trumpet sounded, and I'm rising while the key's rising. And boy, that thrills my soul. I can't tell you the time that uh, I came in and turned that tape on and listened to that song and said, my, and how many times did I re replay that one song and God just seeming to just lift my soul to a greater height. My goodness, what a wonderful thing. Then I've thought to myself also, I'm just kind of beating around the bush and I'll get zeroed in, so just hang with me. Then I thought to myself as well, you know, Calcutta's a wicked place, isn't it? It needs missionaries. And when we went in and we took over and ousted the Japanese out of the Philippines, you know, things weren't right. And MacArthur said, we need some missionaries. Or was that Japan, wherever it was. 
And then I got to thinking about South Africa. And I thought, well, my goodness, so much AIDS in South Africa. We need missionaries. Then I thought about Iraq. Boy, the beheading of the people, the killing of the saints. We need missionaries. Then I think Indonesia. We need missionaries. Now, I'm not being ugly, but I'm going to make it right. California. We need missionaries. We can stand here and say how terrible it is in California and scare the church planters away from the place. I can, I can, on more than what I've got fingers, I can tell you reasons why not to go. And there's no reason in me doing it. But I can give you one reason that God loves Californians every bit as much as He loves Texans, Oklahomans, and Tennesseans. And we need the gospel preached in California. It's a serious issue. You say, oh, sodomy comes out of California. I know. And if we don't find a way to stop it there, it's going to get serious in Texas. We need, we need church planters in California desperately. Desperately we need them. We need them in Washington, don't we, Brother Boohorn? If I understand right, the number one unchurched state in America, they go nowhere to church, is the state of Washington, Oregon, number two. We need them in New York City, 18 million people with five independent Baptist churches holding the King James Bible that, that as far as the church planters of that city have told me about that they know of. Now listen, if we want to look at the issues and say how terrible it is and how rough it is, we might as well close up Tabernacle, just to be honest with you. It's pretty tough around here. But we're not going based on the smoothness or based on how wicked or how unwicked people are. We're going based upon a calling from God. And I'm praying that God will raise up some church planters that will go to California, to Washington, to Oregon, to New York City, to the Midwest, and to go into these places in America. And yes, it's a dogfight in some places. There's no way around it. But that's just where we are in America, and that's where we are as servants of God. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, with me as we turn to Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 15. Stand with me if you, when you found your place. I'm going to read one verse and then go to Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 9 and read one verse. The His conference of this week has, has greatly emphasized uh, the outwards of, of holiness, and there's no doubt about it that when holiness is truly there, it will affect the outward life. This evening, I want us to train our thoughts on the topic. God has redirected my path this evening onto the topic of worship and how it stems from the heart. You do understand that we can have all the acts that we've heard preached this week and have it. We can be in church on a regular basis. We can have the women dressed right. We can have no television in the house. We can honor the Lord's day as we've heard preached and still not have holiness. That's very much a possibility. And so this evening, by the grace of God, let's, let's delve into this topic of what holiness is all about. And it's about the one that's sitting upon the throne this evening. And in Jeremiah chapter, nine, uh, chapter 8 and verse 15, the scripture says, We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and behold, trouble. And there's an exclamation mark. Go to Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 9. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 9. 
therefore is judgment. And I'm stemming that off of some of that topic of the trouble Jeremiah was talking about. Therefore is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. Notice the phrase, we wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. And as I look at this verse this evening, as I am on the verge of preaching on worship, this evening I want us to note that it's as if the church in America today is looking for the light of God and they can't find it. They're looking for the brightness of God, but they walk in darkness. And I know if I were to talk about it, I would point that to be Christ, how the world's looking. But I'm trying to make a point this evening is that we're not losing the world based on the lost people in America. We're not losing the country based on the lost people in America. We're losing it based upon those that call themselves saints, children of God, who are walking in anything but a path of light, but they're walking in paths of darkness. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer this evening. Father, we need you this evening. I'm convinced that holiness is not a bunch of things. But Father, it's just having our heart in tune with you yourself. I'm convinced, God, that the holiness that once it's obtained, once we get it, God, that you'll spread it around this country and around this world. And just as much as every other wicked place in the world needs the gospel preached, so does every wicked place in America need it. And I understand, God, that America's turning her back on you, and I'm pleading yet one more time, God, that you give us a space for repentance and that we would take it up. God, I recognize the danger of asking a prayer request like that. How many times have you, have you opened the door only to have America slam the door on you? God, I stop short. Within me, I almost don't ask, give us another chance for fear that this nation will just reject you or just spit in your face again. God, though we don't deserve another opportunity, though we don't deserve, God, another movement of your precious Holy Spirit across this great land of ours, I'm pleading with you, God, that you would do a work in this meeting even beginning tonight that would not just affect the outwardness of mankind in this, in, of, of those here, but would affect the very heart of us, God. That our hearts would plead to be made right with a holy you. And, oh, Lord, that we would take it with us back to wherever we go, and that Oklahoma would be stirred with the, with the holiness of a, of a Lord that loved them, and he, though being so holy, took their sin upon him. That Texas would be rattled with the gospel of Christ and the holiness of God, and how much he despises sin. I'm just about convinced, Lord that one of the worst sins you despise is the appearance of holiness while it's not true holiness from the heart. God, please, would you move upon every one of us? 
May you this evening put your finger right on every pretender in the room, myself included, if that be the case, and help us to quit playing the games and help us to become real servants of a real God and help us to become holy servants of a holy God and help us to get that facade off of us, that, that appearance of holiness. And God, may holiness be stirred from the inside out. Please, Lord, move upon us. Time is running out for so much. There are people that, Father, this crowd will affect that time is running out for. Time is running out for this nation. Father, time is just flat running out for mankind. You know how I plead with you that we would put all pettiness aside that would interfere with your holiness movement upon our hearts and lives. That God, though all hell would issue its attack against us, may we be found marching true to the holy path that you'd have before us because of our love for you that has been stirred because of your love for us. Precious Lord, please don't let us just go through another week and pat our own personal prides and... and, and somehow walk out and think to ourselves that we have in some fashion impressed so-and-so that sat beside us. Oh God, please may our desire be to impress you. May we stop at nothing to be right with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Would you sing that song, Thou Art Worthy, just to get me really moving this evening, please? Thou art worthy, Thou art worthy, Thou art worthy, Lift it to the heaven to receive glory louder, glory and honor even louder, glory and honor and power. Is the Lord listening? For thou hast created. Hast all things created, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Amen. God be pleased with the evening. The worship of a holy God. It's not something that's done with an outward appearance, although the outward appearance will reveal it.
The worship of a holy God is something that transpires at the very root from the heart of the individual. God said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so as I begin this evening, I remember the time that growing up a liberal Southern Baptist, and as I grew up this liberal Southern Baptist, and God was beginning to move upon me in some form or fashion, and I thought that people were quacks that had some true biblical worship. Worship, I didn't understand it. They raised their hand. I said, charismatic, I can spot them a mile away. I did. Somebody in a crowd and the preacher's preaching and somebody would holler out, Amen! And I'd say, would you look at that, trying to get attention on himself. And I remember some one time somebody gave us this tape after we'd gotten out of the convention and we were into an independent Baptist church. They'd given us the King James Bible. I remember as they had given us this tape and Nadine and I were traveling from Pee Wee Valley, Kentucky to Tennessee and we turned it on, thought we'd see what the new ranks had to offer. And that preacher started shouting at us. And I had never heard anything like that. And I, I turned the thing off and I said, if he cannot talk to us in a right fashion, we are not going to listen to him. But this thing just seemingly was permeating the crowd that we were now in. And I thought, wonder what the Bible actually says on that. And I remember I started in the back page of my Bible here and I wrote across the top of it, Worship. And this evening I'm going to preach those notes out of the back of my Bible on the topic of worship. Go to Psalm chapter 34 and let's see what is worship or at least one of its goals, what worship is. In Psalm chapter 34 and verse 17, we see the Scripture saying it in this fashion. It says, the righteous, verse 13, Psalm chapter 34 and verse 13. That's not the verse I'm after. So if you would go to Psalm 35 and verse 27. Psalm 35 and verse 27. Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor, and, uh, that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually. And here's the, here's, the, here's the basis of it. Let the Lord be magnified. Let the Lord be magnified. If you went to Psalm 69 and we're not in verse 30... Now you'd find that phrase again, to let the Lord be magnified. And worship is a form of magnifying the very Lord and God that saved us and that we committed our very lives to. And so then I started wondering, and I wrote the first word down on shouting, because it was something that was of an interest to me, and I, I noticed so many people were shouting, and I wanted to know what it was all about, and so I wrote it down. And every time I was reading and I came across the shouting I wrote down that, word, uh, that reference. Go to Psalm 47 and let's see what they were shouting about in Psalm 47 and verse 1. We see in Psalm 47 and verse 1, the scripture puts it this way. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people, and note it, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Oh, there's to be this voice of triumph going on. Have you noticed how mysteriously Quiet, the house of God has become with the shouts of God, and it's almost as if that the people of God feel defeated rather than they feel as if triumph is on the horizon and that they're experiencing triumph in a recent past. 
Go to Psalm chapter 5 and look in verse 11. God's people, I'm talking to us this evening on why we should worship. And the shout is, first off, a shout that is a shout of triumph. And if you're saying this evening, I don't seem to be experiencing victory in my life, then I plead with you that you would find the God. I'm talking to the victory. See, in Joshua chapter 5, you find that Joshua is out and he's walking. And as he's walking on the verge of going into battle, well, you better look at it. I'll come to here in just a minute. But you better look at this shout of victory. In Joshua chapter 5, he's walking. And as he's walking, he is on the verge of going up against the city of Jericho. And in verse 13, he encounters a man that stood over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua becomes concerned about who this man is. And it says that he didn't run, but Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And that's a vital question that every child of God must ask. We must not just lock horns with or, or lock arms with somebody and go down a path not knowing which side they're on. And for our youth, we must be extremely cautious to be sure that the friends that we harbor are people that are children of God who are on the Lord's side. And you must find out. You must find out. Ask them whose whose side they're on. But Joshua encounters this man. Notice his answer in verse 14. And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. So now we find out that the man that Joshua has encountered is the captain. We find out if we did some studying over the next three to five verses that he's not just the captain. That phrase, it is God himself that Joshua is dealing with. He says in verse 2 of chapter 6, he said, And the Lord said unto Joshua, This is God himself that he's encountered. And in verse 14, when he is there and he finds out this is God he's dealing with, notice what Joshua does. He fell on on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And then notice, if you would, in verse 2 of chapter 6, that the Scripture says, he says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And in verse 3, he right there, he tells them, you're going to gain a victory. And then in verse 3, he says how you're going to get it. He said, and ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once, thus shalt thou do six days. Now, I want us to notice the order that has transpired before us. In verse 14, Joshua's worshiping. In verse 2 of chapter 6, Joshua's hearing that he's going to get a victory. And in verse 3 of chapter 6, he's hearing how he's going to get the victory. Now, I want us to notice the movement of faith. Joshua had heard nothing of victory, but he's on his face before a holy God, praising that holy God. Victory was not the issue here. Worthiness of the one he was in his presence was the issue. And we as churches encounter so many problems and so many battles. And it's as if if we could say, if I could only know the outcome. And when we finally hear the outcome, we fall on our knees and begin to praise God. But that's backward. See, we as American Christians, we want to know how to get the victory. We want to know we're going to get the victory. And then we'll praise God. But that's a praise of faith. And God's looking for a praise of, of, that's a praise of sight. But he's looking for a praise of faith. See, worship by God. What happens if you don't get the victory? Are you going to worship God anyway? 
What happens if the worst possible thing you can surmise will actually become a reality? Does that mean God died? No, God's still on the throne. Does that mean His worthiness ceased to be? No, He's every bit as worthy today, even in the midst of what we think is defeat. And I'll take that a step further. I wonder how many victories we've missed because we failed to worship God by faith. I wonder how many victories... And so, therefore, the shout of victory is missing in our churches. Well, I don't see the victory. But do you not know the God who holds it? Do we not know the God who harbors all victory within Himself? And I state it as well. If death itself is what's on the horizon, is that not victory in the eyes of a holy God? Then we look at another one, Psalm chapter 5 and verse 11. And in Psalm 5 verse 11, it now talks about defense. We shout unto God for His defense. Notice it in Psalm 511. But let all those that put their trust in Thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because Thou defendest them. And so the quietness of the house of God when the people seemingly have lost their shout, it's as if they have felt that God no longer defends me. He's removed His umbrella of defense for me, and I am suffering great defeat at the hands of the enemy. And the shout of the saints of God is mysteriously silent. God's defense is still well in place. I promise you that if He removed His defense, who knows but what every one of our lives by the adversary would be snuffed out even before this service is over. God's defense is still well intact. He's not lost anything. Look, it's well in this verse. Well, let's look at it in comparison. Psalm 35 and verse 27. We're talking about the why of worship right now. In Psalm 35, and I'm going down to verse 27, and it had a similar tie back there into the one phrase we're in in chapter 5, verse 11. But here it says, let them shout for joy. And somebody comes along and they feel as if they don't have joy. So-and-so did this. So-and-so said that. I thought so-and-so meant this. And they'll run up on their imaginations based upon what they think and lose the joy that God intended for them. Let me say something on this topic. I can think of no reason for a child of God to let somebody else steal the joy of God from them. I struggle with enough within myself to keep, keep right with God that the joy of God would be right, much less to let somebody else come in and do something that would hinder that great joy that God's given to us. So shouting. Is shouting proper? Yes, it is. Is it proper? Yes. And, and But I believe we need to stay within the proper boundaries of the Scripture. There's words such as amen. There's words such as hallelujah. There's words such as praise the Lord that should frequent and fill the house of God for the joy of God, for the defense of a holy God, for the praises of God, for the triumphs that He has given, for the triumphs that by faith He's going to give. A house of God should filter with praises to God. I remember in Kentucky one time, there was one guy, he had a shout, but I wouldn't deem it of God. He, he, uh, he would lean out into the aisle and thrust his fist forward and say, Get him, preacher, nail him! And I thought, 
I don't know if that's a, a shout of praise as much. Maybe it is. Maybe he was praising God for getting after somebody. But I don't know all about that. But I know that there is a proper way to lift our voices to a holy God. Now if you would look in Nahum chapter 8. Not Nahum. Nehemiah chapter 8. And we go to verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 8. And we go to verse 6. And now we're going to change the topic from shouting to a different topic. First off, it says, in actually verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 5, And Ezra opened the book. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the Word of God, whatever they had. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he is above all the people. And notice the phrase here that ends this verse, And when he opened it, all the people stood up. I have no guns to train at anybody. I only say that that one verse, after I was already pastoring, moved me to have the people stand with me when I read the text. I would open the Bible and I ask you, would you please stand with me when you found your place? And it's not just for the sake of, I've heard some preachers say for relaxation, you've been sitting a while and stuff of that nature, and I'm not shooting. But I'm saying that the reason I do it is because God gave me a, a point here that showed the people stood up. And the question that has to be asked is, why did they stand up? That's a good question. Did they not stand up because... The book that was on the verge of being read to them was a book that was demanding respect from the listeners. And all of a sudden, did that standing not become a form of not only just respect, but it became a form of worshiping God and even just standing when His Word was read? I believe it's important. They stood a while, by the way. They stood hours. Look in verse 6. In verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen! Amen! But that next phrase is where we're headed now. With lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now we're after the topic of the lifting up of the hands. In Psalm chapter 134 and verse 2, you don't need to go there. They lifted their hands in the sanctuary. But I want to note first off, before we get into the lifting of the hands, I want us to look at this verse carefully and notice what happened to their heads when they lifted their hands. Now we're living in a day and age that all across the southeast, there's people that know how to lift their hands and they know how to shout the amens. But I'm stating that their heads were not lifted looking for God. Their heads were bowed in humility, recognizing the hand that was going toward God. Notice also it said, it said they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They were a humbled lot. They recognized the book that they had in front of them. It stirred them to respect. It stirred them to humility. So the point I'm after on this is, is that pride will every time completely negate worship. You may be real proud of the testimony you gave, but I promise you it just stopped right there if, if your heart was thinking worshiping God. You may be real proud that you were finally able to raise your hand and boy, I bet my honey was proud of me that I could shout amen in church. Now listen, pride has no place when we're down to worshiping. Amen. It completely nullifies it 
Why then should they? He said, why then should they? And I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Why then? I don't remember what it is. But we have no place for pride in John chapter 5 and verse 44 in the pulpits. God's after humility. He's after the humbleness of mankind. And he's after the lowliness of mankind. So pride is to be completely done away. Go over to 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we look into verse 8. And God speaking, he says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I will therefore, he said, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. I'm comparing that. I'm going to come back to that verse, but I'm comparing it with Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm looking at verse 14. That won't work. I've got, I've got another missed verse here. But the point after we're after here on this topic is, is God says He's looking for lifting up of holy hands. He's looking for the lifting up of a holy hand. Now, what's the hand do? As I look at my hand, I've got some calluses. I've got a wart sitting right there. I've got a ring. I've got a fingernail that's in the quick. What's so special about that hand? Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 41 bears out that when a person lifts their hand to God, they are lifting their heart to God. This hand is not what God's after. It's what it is symbolically lifting to Him is what it's after. And my suggestion to, to the individuals today is that before you go lifting a hand to God, all that His Holy Spirit would search your heart out and reveal to you what's actually on your heart. And then I ask the question, do you all honestly want to flaunt your heart in the eyes of God? Is it pure? Is it holy? Or is it harboring hidden sin that mom and dad don't know about? Or is it harboring hidden sin that a spouse doesn't know about? Or a pastor doesn't know about? Or an employer doesn't know about? God's looking for a heart that's symbolically lifted to Him with a hand that's holy. That's why I say if we're going to talk about His Baptist churches, holy, independent, separated, praise God for the outward things that have been discussed. But if we don't have more than the outward, if the Word of God does not penetrate to the very heart of the matter, then we have done nothing more than to dress up death itself. And our flesh simply does not need another pretend. Look in verse 9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. What a statement verse 11 is. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. And if I could, and I'm not demising any of those things, but if I could take that entire lump sum of what I just read to you and state one sentence that would, would really put, a, put a, a thought on those verses is, is that the woman should be something that when the people look at her, they see her God rather than her. And if I could, if I could say, but, but now I come back to the first four words of verse 9. In verse 9, the scripture says, in like manner also. He's pointing back to something. 
He says that the woman's to dress or to adorn herself in modest apparel. Somebody says, what's modest? I told the youth about it, what was modest. I told you about it several years ago, but I'll give you the snotterly definition of modest. Now, we're not, ladies, get your, get your dresses so long that nobody could call them short. Get them so high that nobody could say they're low. Get them so full that nobody could say they're too tight, the addition that we just had. And get them so non-see-throughable that nobody can see through them and we'll arrive real close to modest. See, worship, now ladies, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you on this topic because we've got a movement afoot in the southeast that's got a very wrong method of women worshiping God. You don't find the men doing it, but you find the women doing it. They'll stand and they'll flail their arms like they're getting ready to do jumping jacks. And they'll scream at the highest pitch they can get their voice. And they'll do things in it many times, being extremely immodest while doing it and calling it worship and overcome by the Holy Spirit. And it is not of God. The two points on it we're talking about here, when the lifting up of a hand, we're in the midst of worship. And God said it's to be modest, and if it takes a woman to an immodest status, it's not right. And secondly, in verse 11, he said, let the women learn in silence. And if it takes them beyond silence, it's not worship of God. I'm not, I'm not oh, don't, don't misunderstand me and sit there and think, well, Brother Snarley thinks we can't say anything in church. No, I didn't say that in the slightest. But enough of I haven't. I've yet heard one man stand up and screech like an owl at the highest point. I've yet heard one man do that. I've not seen one man stand up and do jumping jacks as if God's got such a grip on him he's pinching him. Amen. I've seen the women acting like that. Amen. And it is not of God. He said, I will therefore that men, he said that men pray everywhere. Catch the place, the placement, everywhere. Catch the in like manner also. That women adorn themselves in modest apparel. I heard somebody state it today that we need to be dressed, women need to be dressed right in, in, in uh, the house and in the store and in the, this place and the, that place and they were naming them. But why is that? Because God here says that wherever men are to be praying everywhere and like men are also women are to be dressed modestly. And where were the men to be praying? Well, I said it. They are to be praying everywhere. Therefore, the woman is to be modestly dressed everywhere. Amen. Her attire completely. If you knock on her door and, and, uh, and it's, it's a decent time of day and a woman is caught by surprise, she should be modestly uh, dressed and her attention should be bringing God to into view. That's what it should be doing. Amen. The lifting up of the hand. And then we note that it's a lifting up of the hand toward heaven. And so then also we need to notice the stature of what takes place at an altar. You do understand an altar is a place of death as we're going to Psalm 95. The altar is a place of death and when we come to the altar, it's not somehow to convince God, God, I, I want to be able to get up and live in the flesh, but we need to be able to go to an altar and let God just completely put us to death and to be able to completely do... Now in 95 of the book of Psalm, Psalm 95 verse 6, the scripture says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the, day, as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works. But now I'm after the posture. 
And this one, the posture said back in verse 7, he said, for, he said we are the people of his, uh, uh, better back up verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Then he says as well, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And the statement that I want to make on this is, as people say, well, I can get right with God out in the midst of my wheat field, and I can get right with God over here while at work. Yes, you can. But we don't have a thing in the Bible that speaks of you going to God in a wheat field. Now, you can do it, and I'm not challenging that. We don't have anything that says getting right with God sitting in front of your computer. But if we want to search the Bible, we find definitely a statement that we are to be at an altar, bowed down, lowly before an almighty God, kneeling before Him. If I can see the picture in my eyes, if a person gets so overcome, I can see them with their faces to the ground, bent down in a humble status, hands raised to heaven, worshiping a holy God, humbly doing so. Psalm chapter 96, look at verse 1. And if you were to look at this, you are looking at Psalm 96 for the worthiness of the worship. We sang the song, Thou Art Worthy, but notice in Psalm 96 it compares very well with Revelation 4.11. Why is God worthy? Well, if you were to look at it, we'd see in verse 1 that God, in verse, in verse 2, that God is worthy of our worship because of His salvation He's given to us. We see in verse 3 it says, it says, declare His glory. Then it says, His wonders. We're talking about the worthiness of God to worship Him. He's a wonder, a God that when we contemplate, our minds must just be marveled at what we think about God. So we see the wonders of God. Then we see in verse 4, He is great. And so we think of the greatness of an almighty God. You'll let me pause and talk about that time that I was out walking in the field and I got thinking about the God of all glory and how great He really is. And I remember thinking to myself about the weight of my own personal sin. And I said it just sometimes wanted to buckle my knees. My sin. And then I think to myself, if I were to come back and take Brother Logan's sin upon me and carry yours and mine, I feel as if I just have to rest my hand upon my knees and just in some fashion try to stay afloat and struggle at it. Now, if I were to take Brother Harvey's sin on me, I think I'd just fall flat on my face. With three. No, I'm joking. But the three of us with our sins upon one person... Imagine that. The magnitude of that, that weight that would... But the marvel of God, how He took the sin of the entire world upon Himself. And I see sin like a pyramid in this case. And in turning that sin upside down and resting it completely upon Jesus Christ. The whole weight of that sin, He shouldered Himself. The marvel of a holy God... Let me pay for my sin, Brother Logan. I will be forever paying for my sin. Let Christ pay for your sin. It's paid for. An eternal debt just like that. The marvel of a holy God. I marvel at it. His greatness. What a God we have. And then think about that in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So now we're talking about His Creator. He is the Creator. Amen. You're right, He didn't evolve. What a, what a joke that is. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm not being ugly, but it seems to me it'd take a real ignoramus to come to the conclusion that we evolved from the things that you said. Right, and if you really push them, 
Where did that come from? Well, where did that come from? Well, where did that come from? They come to a point they scratch their heads. I mean, there's got to be a beginning somewhere. And the marvel of a God who steps out into nothing. And let me see, hand me that other Bible down there, Naomi. As, as God as creator came to a point that he created everything, what a God we've got. I've got one author that wrote something that's just tremendous on this topic that stirs my heart every time I read that thing. It says it this way, it says, When the time came, God, He reached down the hand of His omnipotence into the great abyss of nothingness and threw it out into nowhere and everything. And nothing became something. What a God we have. The God of all creation. One other writer said it this way. He said, once upon a time, there was no time. Everything made by God. Everything made by a holy God. The marvel, the worship that is due Him because He's our Creator. Because Look in verse 6. It's just due Him because of honor. It says, honor and majesty are before Him. So we see the honor and the majesty. We see the strength of God. He's worthy because of how His strength is. We see Him in verse 7. He's worthy because of His beauty. We see Him in verse 9. He's worthy because of His holiness. We see Him in verse 11. That He is worthy because He is judge. What a God we have. What a God we have. Go to Mark chapter 14, if you would, please, with me. In Mark chapter 14. We see a lady here who comes to Christ. In Mark chapter 14, she comes to Christ in verse 3, probably. Let me take a quick look. And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman. Having an alabaster box, it says, an, uh, an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And then the scripture says, and she break it, break the box and poured it on, on his feet. And then we compare that right there with ver John chapter 12 and verse 3. And the comparison with John chapter 12 and verse 3 shows a woman, similar situations, the exact situation, just a little different angle. And it says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus. But there's another statement that says, And wiped his feet with her hair. Under this topic, I want to make this statement that a woman's hair can glorify God. Amen. This woman had long enough hair to be able to reach the feet of Christ. Some women have to be rubbing their ears on him to get down there close. I'm not being ugly. I'm just stating how it is. And her hair was long enough to reach the very feet of Christ. If I made a quick comparison to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about the woman's long hair being her glory. And the picture that we've got right here is the woman took what was her glory and put it at the feet of Christ. What's your glory this evening? What's your glory? Go to Luke chapter 10 with me. In Luke chapter 10 we see an instance here where verse 38, Mary and Martha are with Christ and Mary is sitting three times you find Mary and all three times you find her at the feet of Christ. Martha's complaining in this situation and verse 40 says, But Martha was cumbered about 
Luke chapter 10 verse 40 says, But Martha was cumbered about with about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bitter therefore that she help me. Notice Christ's response in verses 41 and 42. He said, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. In this verse here, we see that God, in his rebuking of Martha, he did not rebuke her for serving Christ. He rebuked her for not having worshipped him before she served him. And so many times we get caught up in the things that we're doing, the worship, the work, the work, the work. Why is it so many missionaries are coming off the field? Why is it so many pastors are throwing in the towel? Why is it so many, many people say, I don't want to be used like that and I'm going to just be a pew sitter? Why is it that that takes place? In many a case, it's because the person has deemed it necessary to do work before they worshiped. Let me put it this way. Worshiping God takes the sting out of working for God. When you learn to, to worship God and then out of that worship flows your working for God, then all of a sudden it's not a chore, but it's an opportunity. All of a sudden it's not a burden, but it's the grace of God. It's letting me work for Him. A form of worshiping God, to sing in the choir. Oh, not a burden to come to choir practice. No. I get to worship God with my voice to practice these instruments and to perfect them not for your glory, but for His glory. It's not to be a burden. Oh, I have to practice again. No. It's stemming out of worship itself. It becomes something you can do to glory, glorify God. I know not all the tasks that go on here. I know the place looks awfully clean every time I come in here. Somebody's done something, but if they aren't careful, they'll get burdened down. This is a chore. This is a, oh, I have to do it again. But if we could just be found at the altar, worshiping God before we grab the vacuum cleaner, Amen. it'll stem to worshiping. Amen. In Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, In verse 9, the scripture says it this way. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Notice step number one was talking to God about God. Step number two, that was in verse 9. Step number two was talking to God about us in verse 11. Step number three was talking to God about others. In verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors about others. I want to note that in the very first 
part of the Lord's Prayer that he, he gave a pattern for us to follow. It was a form of worshiping himself. There came a day, I can't hardly even sing that song, Holy, Holy, Holy. I get to singing that song and I get overcome, I feel like crying, I feel like flopping on the floor on my face, I feel like lifting my hand. But there came a day that God spoke to me clearly. Be sure your heart's right before your hand goes up. There came a day that when I started praying and God started putting pieces of my prayer life together on a daily basis, how I would be praying. My daily basis prayer life goes something along this lines. I'm looking for God to cleanse me. God, help me to be dead to that old thing that's already dead. Help me not even to go there. Set a watch on my mouth. Renew my mind. I make a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think about a maid, Job said in Job 31.1. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sin. Help me to be humble as you would have me to be. Add to my faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, knowledge, temperance, temperance, patience, patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, charity. Gird my loins with truth. Put upon me the breastplate of righteousness. Shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Help me to, above all, take the shield of faith. Help me to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of you. Help me to have an attitude of prayer. The very next point that God nudged on me as soon as I can get me to a point that I believe I'm close and as, as close as I can get to being what God wants me at that instant. The very next point He led me was tell me how great you think I am. The worshiping status, the hallowedness of thy name. It became first and foremost, when I thought I could reach heaven itself with my prayers, it became of the supreme importance to talk about a holy God and how wonderful He is. You know how we pray, don't you, Brother Lightsey? We go selfishly before the throne about us. The throne of God's not about us. It's about Him. There was a friend in North Carolina told me the story about the first time he ever shouted, Brother Harvey. First time he ever shouted, he said he grew up in a just some kind of a dead church that didn't shout and raise their hands. He said the first time it ever happened, he said, Brother Snodderly, he said, I was sitting in church and holding my King James Bible and reading as the preacher was preaching and he said, oh, preaching got so sweet he said inside there was just a welling taking place within me and he said I felt like I've got to do something but I wasn't sure what to do I saw what they were doing and he said inside of me I felt like hollering amen I felt like lifting my hand to glory no one can do it no that's not me those folks are just a bunch of hicks he said, I sat there 
And he said, I held it in. I compressed it and wouldn't let it out. He said, it began to pump in my head. He said, my ears were hearing my blood pump. It was whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. He said, I was holding the praises of a holy God in. He said, it got so bad, it felt like it was going to pop the top of my head off. I was holding it in. It felt like I've got to give it. My head was hurting terribly. He said, so finally, he said, Brother Smiley, I stood up and lifted my King James Bible to glory. I hollered, Amen! And he said, my nose stopped and started bleeding and I passed out. (laughs) Doesn't pay to hold a praise in, does it? Are we not going to worship God? Holy, independent, separated. What is that all about? It's about how I look, preacher. No, you got it wrong. It's about what you are. And what you are will affect the way you look. 